My name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast, a place for extended, in-depth discussions about the rebirth of virtuous masculinity happening around the world today. My guest this week is a husband, father, and author of the book The Return of the Dragon, The Shocking Way Drugs and Religion Shape People and Societies. Please welcome Lewis Unget. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the renaissance of men. You are the renaissance. Turn on, tune in, drop out. Timothy Leary, the famous LSD advocate, spoke those words in 1967 at an event of 30,000 hippies called the Human Bean in Golden Gate Park, San Francisco. It was already an era of radical social change, fostered by feminism, sexual liberation, assassinations, the war in Vietnam, and much more. The moment was an explosive mix, but by promoting powerful mind-altering chemicals, Leary dropped an accelerant right into it. Because with those six words, he changed America's relationship to drugs forever. Now, turbocharged weed is sold in shops on almost every street corner. Movies like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas celebrate hedonistic drug-fueled indulgences as comedy. Madonna asks her followers about Molly, otherwise known as the club drug ecstasy. And major influencers and celebrities like Joe Rogan, Aubrey Marcus, Aaron Rodgers, Mike Cernovich, and many, many others talk about how ayahuasca changed their lives and promote the drug as a lifestyle. In my recent Exiting the New Age presentation, which will be released soon as a video course, I demonstrated how psychedelic drugs are part of the New Age, which is undeniably part of the push for a one-world religion and one-world government. Yes, I proved it, and I can't wait to show you. But even before that was the case, these substances had a dark, dark history that those who do them were never told about. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is Lewis Unget, and he's a husband, father, and writer on a wide variety of topics like culture, finance, history, philosophy, theology, and science. He holds a degree in engineering, an MBA, and a master's in divinity, all of which gives him the necessary background to tackle this complicated and obscure topic, which he did in the excellent book, The Return of the Dragon, The Shocking Way Drugs and Religion Shape People and Societies. As many of you know, I have my own extensive experience with so-called plant medicines like ayahuasca and wachuma which, by the grace of God, I was saved from. But had I known the undeniable truth of how these drugs were used in the societies that they originate from, I might have thought twice before doing them in the first place. Because when Lewis says the shocking way drugs and religion shape people and societies, he means it. His thesis is truly shocking. Any sensible-minded person who reviews his evidence cannot deny the startling conclusions he's reached. And from having walked on that side of reality, I can't say he's wrong either. In fact, plenty of what I saw indicates he's right, which is why I'm thrilled and honored to have him on my podcast today. In our conversation, Lewis and I discussed his story and the background and arc of his book, 
the case for and against psychedelics, why transhumanism is worse than atheism, the biblical warnings of pharmakia, angels versus demons in the Bible, the so-called wisdom of spirits, and finding forgiveness in Christ. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. This podcast is growing like wild this year, and it's all because of you. So if you enjoy this podcast, please go on doing what you're doing and share this episode with a friend. Also, please leave a five-star rating on Spotify or a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts so the Renaissance of Men can reach more people. A couple bits of exciting news. First, I've just announced the first edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series on Saturday, March 25th. This will be an all-day event streamed live via Zoom, featuring men who I think are the most exciting creators today. They're also some of the most downloaded and watched guests of this podcast. The men will be talking about six essential masculine virtues that I think all men today need to embody. The lineup features Will Nolan from Nolan Knows speaking about resilience, Ryan King from The Wisdom of Kings speaking about heroism, Nate Spearing speaking about courage, King David, now known as John David, speaking about self-mastery, Lawson Speaks Truth discussing determination, and last but definitely not least, Mike Pantile speaking about boldness. I'm incredibly excited about the start of this series. Keep listening to find out more, hit the link in the description, or go to renofmen.com slash conference to get all the details and buy tickets. Use the code PODCAST to take $5 off the ticket price. Also, I'm hosting the first ever Renaissance of Men men's retreat here in Phoenix on the weekend of April 1st, one week later. No, that's not an April Fool's joke. I've rented a luxury Airbnb, all food will be provided, prepared by a trained chef, and my mentor Glenn will be coming out to share his wisdom and experience. I'm planning and facilitating an entire weekend of outdoor activities, brotherhood, introspection, and deep connection. If this sounds good to you, email me at info at rainofmen.com to learn more and schedule a discovery call to see if there's a fit with this close-knit group of men. Once again, email info at rentofmen.com to find out more about the retreat and visit rentofmen.com slash conference to purchase tickets to the digital conference series on Saturday, March 25th. And please welcome this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the author of the accurately named The Return of the Dragon, The Shocking Way Drugs and Religion Shape People and Societies, Lewis Unget. Hey, Lewis, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. So uh, thank you for reaching out. I think it was probably late last year and offering to send me a copy of your book. Um, Gosh, I have it right. I I should grab it. I should have it uh, handy. I I got a copy here. Oh, great. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Yeah, it's The Return of the Dragon. And, um, you know, ayahuasca, plant medicines, sacred medicines, whatever, earth medicines, whatever you want to call it. Uh, is becoming very, very popular, of course, as part of my story. And in fact, I had a two-hour conversation yesterday with a former Special Forces soldier who has the opportunity to go down to Mexico and and do some work around this. And apparently, it's very popular in many corners of the Special Forces community. So this subject is up. And of course, with Aubrey Marcus and Joe Rogan and all this stuff, um, it's the word, and Aaron Rodgers, the word ayahuasca is like a, a publicly known word and it's treated with this real lack of skepticism, uh, unfortunately. So how did you discover the subject of plant medicines and, and, and how did you begin approaching it? Because you have the most skeptical attitude that I've read and it's actually fantastic because I was really ready to hear it. Yeah, thanks. Uh, so 
for me, I mean, my first introduction to um, any kind of psychedelic uh, medicine, any psychedelic drug was actually back when I was in late high school, early college, um, where I was in that circle of people where we did mushrooms, we did weed, we did mescaline and LSD. So like I had experienced all that when I was young and didn't like the way, like ultimately kind of rejected. I didn't like the way it took me out of reality. Didn't like the way it took me out of, um, kind of this world and just felt like it was bad for my brain and for my spirit. And I just, not for any religious reasons, not for any, um, reason other than just a feeling. I just rejected it and didn't do it. Um, it was not until years later um, that I started to feel, um, started to hear about it. You know, many of the things you were talking about started to hear Joe Rogan talk about it, started to hear it kind of in culture. Um, I remember uh, hearing this was um, not that long ago, it was after I had started the book, but I remember hearing um, the boys cast, which is, uh, um, Ryan Long and uh, Danny uh, Polish Chuck um, talking, and they said something along the lines of "mushrooms are in." Like ten years ago, you wouldn't you wouldn't take mushrooms; it wasn't a popular party drug. But now, just everybody's taking mushrooms. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm also hearing it from you know, obviously Joe Rogan, Aaron Rodgers, um, Davos, like the um, World Economic Forum that has you know their their big they've been in the news kind of a lot recently yeah. for a lot of their globalist objectives um they had a psychedelic breakout where they they did what? um kind of yeah they had uh, a a a group of of psychedelic kind of doctors and shaman and that kind of stuff that went oh, to davos um the last that. couple of years um so it just and for me so what i heard um Joe Rogan talking about DMT. My wife had watched some documentary on DMT and I, um, I thought it was interesting. Like it's kind of an interesting thing where it's like people take DMT, they see these entities, they see these geometric shapes that look like Aztec shapes, that kind of stuff. And it's in my brain. I was like, Oh, that's a fascinating brain phenomenon. So that was just like my assumption. It was like, there's, there's this interesting thing that goes on in your brain when you take this particular drug and I kind of looked, you know, heard about it, put it away. And then it kept coming back up for me. And eventually I just was like, this is fascinating. And at some point in time, I just went kind of down the rabbit hole and started reading every account that I could think of, you know, there's online, there's forums of DMT accounts, that kind of stuff. So um, books on, and eventually I kind of expanded my, reading to include other psychedelics like magic mushrooms and LSD and, and other, uh, other drugs. But, um, it is a, it's a fascinating thing. So just for anybody that doesn't know that much about DMT, um, dimethyltryptamine, it's the active ingredient in an ancient Incan, uh, drink that was called ayahuasca Mm -hmm. and, um, ayahuasca lasts for a long time. DMT and the synthesized version lasts for a short period of time, but has similar effects in both cases um, where people see these entities, they see these shapes. Um, the entities often get described as elves, machine elves. Um, sometimes it'll be mm-hmm. serpent, human hybrids. Sometimes it'll be um, a variety of different hybrid animals um, or that kind of stuff. So 
very similar things that everybody sees. And it seems to be somewhat independent of culture. So like if, if you're an Incan tribesman, you see the same things that you or I would see, or some hippie in Australia would see, or some businessman in Europe would see. It's, it's pretty fascinating that can confirm this drug and, and you go to this one place and, and everyone sees the the same things. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I can confirm that. Like the things that I've seen and people listen to the podcast know that, you know, part of my background is 15 ayahuasca ceremonies in the United States and Peru. And the things, the things that I've seen when I actually have seen, you know, physically shaped entities, you know, have been hybrid creatures and it has been, you know, very tribal esque kind of patterns. And I can't actually identify them as being part of any culture or something that I, some preconceived notion that I brought most of the time, you know, I don't, I don't remember seeing, you know, really clear outlines and shapes like some people report, but the few times that I do, yeah, they did kind of have that character to them. So by the way, please continue. Yeah. So, um, between that and I, I forgot, I, I read Graham Hancock. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Graham yeah. Hancock, but yeah. he's a, um, writes on Mesoamerica kind of alternative history kind of stuff. I found him interesting, but he's super into ayahuasca. Like that's one mm-hmm. of he's written books, um, on ayahuasca. He wrote a book called supernatural that I read, um, on ayahuasca. Um, and he's convinced that they're real, that the entities are not, um, a weird brain phenomenon, which is what I thought initially. He he's convinced that you see real things that continue to exist after you come down from your high. Um, that they're real entities, real spirits that you see after um, that that it continue to exist regardless of whether you're high on the on the DMT or the ayahuasca itself. Mm-hmm. And that was a common thing that was said. So as I started to read the research, which by the way, there's some work that uh, uh, Dr. Rick Strassman has done. Um, and if you just read the studies, they're fascinating because it covers a lot of this stuff. But the overwhelming majority of people see these entities and claim that they're real, like claim that they're, they're they, you know, so, you know, think about when you ha- when you dream at night, you dream, you wake up, nobody, almost nobody wakes up and says that dream was real. They say, thank God it wasn't real, right? Like, thank Mm -hmm. goodness what I saw in that dream wasn't real. When people take ayahuasca or DMT and they come down, they say that was real. And the interesting Mm -hmm. thing is that they do that even if they're an atheist. So even if they don't believe in God, even if they don't believe in spirits, they come back and they say that was real. And as a matter of fact, the interesting yeah. thing about atheists is like a majority of atheists that take ayahuasca or DMT cease to be atheists after they take it. So it's it's pretty pretty you fascinating. You have to. And you have to. Yeah. But just real quick, that's yeah. my argument. It's like and, when when go ahead, sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Yeah, that's cuz you oh. have experience with I personally haven't taken ayahuasca. So yeah, go ahead. Yeah, you're better off. So, um, so this is my argument against like you know people like Joe Rogan or whatever who who say you know I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. It's like you literally drank a a potion that lets you see and commune with spirits. That's what ayahuasca is. You are literally communing with a disembodied plant spirit that is working on your energy body or spirit, depending on how you frame it. 
you don't get to be an atheist. You, you don't get to do this practice and pretend that you're an atheist. You've just, you've just communed with the spirit world. Like you can't say that yeah. anymore, but people do. It's yeah. like, yeah. I don't, I just, I don't know, man. I don't know. I do it all the time, but I don't know. It's like, ah. Uh. Yeah. Yeah. It is. Um, it's strange when people don't stop with the atheism stuff, but the majority of people don't. Most, or mo- most people cease to be atheists. Yeah. You have to after they take it, and um, the so kind of what this book is. This book, Return of the Dragon, um, that I wrote was my. It started with an article I wrote on my Substack, which was called the "What? Who are the entities? Mm-hmm. Um, who are the entities?" And that was really what for me. It was let's take Graham Hancock's smart guy. He seems like a sane person. He seems like a a a person that is wouldn't lie about it. He seems genuinely that he believes what he says. What if he's right? Like, what if they are real? If they, if he is right and they are real, who are they? And that kind of is the foundation for my book. So I went in almost with no preconceptions and just was like, okay, what does history say? What does science say? What do the studies say? What does philosophy say? What does Christianity, historic Christianity say? And what's, kind of bringing that all together to to figure out who are these entities that people people are seeing and to be honest the the answer is disturbing so yeah well i want to get to that answer in a minute but that's i think that's one of the things that was interesting about reading the book is that um i don't know if you had formed your perspective by the time you started writing but in the very early chapters of the book I was unclear what your perspective on it was. I mean, it's a very well-written book, so it was really engaging, but there was a little bit of, a, of ambiguity in the early chapters, I felt. It could just be my, my initial impressions and my, my skepticism meter turned all the way up, for example. But um, did it, was it the case that your, yeah. um, was it the case that your, your, percep- your perceptions or opinions or perspectives um, changed as you were writing the book until before you reached your final conclusion? It's definitely the case that my view developed as I wrote this book. Um, it it wasn't necessarily that I was positive uh, towards the drug, even though people have said the first few chapters do seem positive towards the drug. And I, part of that is that I just wanted neutral. to be fair. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I wanted to be fair with because often what happens is if you say something negative about it, people will say, well, hey, there's a study that shows it helps with anxiety or the study uh, that shows it helps with um alcoholism or whatever. And so talk about I wanted that. to give, give those studies and give that experience that people have had a fair hearing. Otherwise, I nobody that's serious about these drugs is going to take the book seriously. So like that was a big part of fair. it was I wanted to be as honest and fair with kind of the positive view of it before I talked about some of the disturbing elements of it um, in the second half of the book. That's fair. That's a fair approach. And that's kind of that's kind of the impression that I was left with by the time I finished, where it was like you wanted to be because I didn't think it was positive towards ayahuasca when I was reading it. Because things that are positive towards ayahuasca are like glowing and romantic and exciting and almost like marketing brochures. And I didn't I didn't feel that. I felt that you were being you were being neutral to it with um you know, with an openness, I guess I would say, you know, but I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Like you weren't advocating, but definitely by, and I, and I think that was actually probably the best approach because it kind of lures the reader in 
maybe that, I don't know, luring is not your intention to deceive, but it's like you get into it and you get into the book and then it's like, well, now let's actually take a look at what's, let's, let's, let's look what, what's really going on. Let's, let's see what's going on here. There's some twists in the story. Yeah. Like plot it twist. Starts off, starts off. Yeah. There's a plot twist as, as you go. And uh, that was a plot in my mind. There was a plot twist as I wrote this book where it was pretty jarring to me as I, as I looked into the history and the, and the philosophy and the um, dynamics behind it. It was, it was pretty jarring for me personally as, as the author of the book. And I think that comes across. And I think now I'm really happy to hear you say that because um, it makes me like the book more. Because I felt that I, I felt that shift, like it wasn't like a hard left turn, but I felt that the trajectory of the book turned during the reading it, and I wasn't sure if like that would ha- be a very high degree of of writerly con- consciousness to do that, right? But I actually like it better that it actually is reflecting your personal journey with the subject matter as you went. Yeah, yeah, um, no, it definitely did, and um, I think. Anybody that reads the book with an open mind might go on that similar journey where there's there's some amazing stuff. Um, yeah. it's the the whole thing is amazing. It will take to some degree take people out of their comfort zone. Um, it certainly is not um, cer- certainly is not light reading necessarily. Although I think it's it's very readable and, and enjoyable to read, but it's it's pr- pretty profound ideas um, behind it. And, and if the conclusions are right, pretty unsettling conclusions. I mean, I, I found it very difficult to um, believe that your conclusions were wrong. Like I was looking, I was looking like, okay, is there an, is there an air gap in here? And I think by the end, um, and don't worry for the listeners, like we will get to what the conclusions are. So this isn't, you know, but I, th- I think they're, they're worth, they're worth waiting for. So, but in, in the in the reading of the book, I, I I felt that it was a pretty solid case. But before we get there, you mentioned. But I will say this is almost the way you have to tell the story. Yes. So, like you say, we'll get to the conclusions. And I hate it when people are like, "What is your book? What's your point of the book?" Because I feel like if you don't read the beginning, if you don't work through it with me in the book, yeah. the conclusion sounds insane. Right. So like, I hate to just jump to the conclusion because that by itself just sounds like, oh, this is a lunatic that wrote this book. Yes, exactly. And, and so I'm glad to hear you say, like, it really worked out. There's sort of a divine providence aspect to it. Like, not only did your perspective shift, but that, but it felt very honest with the openness in the beginning. And then as your own, and, and then as your own journey evolved, you sort of understood your perceptions towards it. And then also it makes the thing more readable and enjoyable. Right versus like I'm just going to hit you over the head with this conclusion right now, which might actually you know turn a lot of people off that need to read it. And I think you might have said something like that to me in some of your initial emails, perhaps I don't know, but I had that impression that you know people need to read this so you go you go easy on the front end so that they're invested by the end. He's like, look, I understand the case that you're making. Like, don't get I'm not dismissing you. Now read this other side of things. It's like then that's what makes it so challenging. Yeah, and like I said, there's authors that I respect that are into ayahuasca. You know, there's mm. people, and even like you know, we've talked about like Joe Rogan and Graham Hancock, those kind of guys. Like, I don't dislike those yeah. guys. Like, I like you know, like there, there's uh, there's elements of those guys I really like, but like at the same time, um, so I think to give them a fair hearing and to kind of go through it with them, I think is important. Yeah. So let's start with what people say are the benefits. So you mentioned that you had read Graham Han- Hancock and. 
Rick Strassman, who I think wrote the the DM the Spirit Molecule. I think is is that is that his book, DMT the Spirit Molecule. Yeah, so Spirit Molecule. Yep. Yeah, and you broke so up a little bit in your let, question there. So. Oh, okay. I was asking, like, uh, saying that you started by you mentioned Graham Hancock and Rick Strassman. You know, the Spirit Molecule. And I was saying, let's um, let's start with the case that people make for ayahuasca, like or or whatever sort of plant medicines. Sure. Ayahuasca just happens to be the most popular one, but there are many of them. You know, mushrooms is another one. Um, DMT or Bufo ovarius, which is like the Sonoran Desert toad. It comes from all these different sources. But what are the cases yeah. that these um, scientists, celebrities, researchers, Davos? Oh, that's so scary. What is the what's the case that these individuals and organizations make for these um, substances? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So there's a there's a variety of things that people say that are good about psychedelic substances as a whole, and there's been very detailed studies at Johns Hopkins University, at New York University, at University of Wisconsin-Madison, um, and they've done very detailed studies on people that have problems. So if you take people that have anxiety or you take people that have depression or people that are um, struggling in some way um, from a mental health standpoint, maybe with addiction, um, and they'll, do, they'll give people psilocybin, which is the synthesized version of uh, magic mushrooms, um, or they'll do DMT. And they will um, then kind of evaluate them and see if it helped or not. And um, interestingly, it does help. Like, clear the studies over and over again show there's clear benefits to calming anxiety. There's clear benefits to um, healing post traumatic stress, for example. Um, there's clear benefits to addiction. Um, LSD, interestingly, back in the 1950s and 60s, before it really got banned um, under the Controlled Substances Act and and kind of even for research um, was eliminated by the end of the 1960s, early 70s, um, LSD was widely used as a cure for addiction, for alcohol and tobacco uh, addiction. So people will take those studies and say, there's real therapeutic benefits that have been shown with studies um, for a variety of psychedelic medicines, drugs, whatever you want to call yeah. them. Um, so that's that's point number one. Now, the interesting thing is, as you read the literature on this, a lot of people are not happy with it just being a medicine for the sick. Um, what gets said mm-hmm. over and over again is that it is good for the healthy. It helps with creativity. It helps with um, uh, morality, like openness to other people, uh, uh, a willingness to uh, explore your thing. own humility in the world, um, a love for everyone. And those are the things that's interesting. Like the therapeutic aspect of it gets brought up because everyone respects helping somebody that's sick. You know, there's a value to everybody sees that. The, but that the real thing, a lot of these advocates, um, whether it's Michael Pollan or, or Graham Hancock or Rick Strassman, um, Terrence McKenna, um, the real benefit is to help the healthy, to expand the consciousness of the healthy. Lex Friedman had a, had a podcast a while back where he talked about how it can just be used to take humans to the next level of consciousness. And um, so as 
you you asked what the benefits, what purported benefits are. That's it. So (laughs) a wide variety of therapeutic benefits, but also just taking humanity to the next level is, is what is, is stated as, as the benefits. Yes. And and they use, they use these, these uh, studies on the improvement of um, symptoms of modernity, right? Depression and anxiety are symptoms of modernity. And, you know, when I went down to, um, when I went down to Peru for my ayahuasca retreat, and actually, as I think about the ones I did in the United States as well, the people who were there, who were sincere and were just looking for kicks, there's always that number of people, they were suffering from symptoms of modernity. And that's pretty well acknowledged within the psychedelic community, right? Like th- that I participated in. That the, that the most of the reasons why people are there, in fact, the shamans at the center in Peru, you know, I asked them, you know, they, they see so many people per, per well, they, they saw so many people per year, or per month. And I asked them, you, they didn't speak English, so I asked them through a translator because I was curious. I said, you know, so, so what's interesting to you? And I said, well, they, the, through the translator, they said most people come down for depression and anxiety, but the things that we're really interested in are, you know, exorcisms. That's the stuff that, gets, uh, that they did in their own private communities. So even they, like not, not for people coming from the West, but, but for people in their own little tribal villages, right? So, um, so I, th- I think the only va- valid case that I think can be made is that these people who are quote unquote sick, they're suffering from symptoms of modernity, not from anything like, I don't want to call it not real because depression and anxiety are real, but you know, let's, let's frame the illness in a sense, for what it for what it really is, it's a spiritual illness brought on by the emptiness of our culture. Yeah, yeah that that's a great insight, and I I would agree with that. That's um, one of the things I think that we've lost track of as moderns is the difference between a, a clear health problem or a clear um, uh, medical issue. And a spiritual issue. Mm. And we blend those two. So we'll say, oh, you're, you're depressed. And we don't think, okay, is that depression? Is that some kind of medical issue with your depression? Or is that because you've got, you're spiritually in a bad place, right? We don't try and differentiate that. We don't think about it. We kind of throw the same tools, the same weapons at, at both of those, those issues. And as a result, I think that's where some of the therapeutic benefits come from is we're throwing them at not necessarily a medical issue. We're throwing them at a spiritual issue. As a matter of fact, one of the anxiety issues that they tried to solve, and actually it was very effective according to their studies, were people that were um, terminal. They had terminal illness and they were about to, you know, approaching death, and they were very anxious about death. And uh, psilocybin helped with that, quote unquote, helped with that. Mm. I would say that the anxiety you have as you approach death is clearly a spiritual question yes. right that's clearly a time when you're about to find out what happens when you die mm-hmm. you're about to find out what happens you're about to meet your maker or enter blackness or whatever it is that happens when you die you're about to experience that and i would say throwing a a, a medicine at that throwing treating that like it's a a a medical problem it seems insane to me yeah, and I think that might be why 
these these quote unquote medicines that are from a psychedelic standpoint actually work is they're treating the spiritual side. And you know, I think the the spiritual question is something that we need to talk more about because that word has almost universal positive connotations in modern Western culture. And um, one of the things I make the case for in the book is it should not. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, we'll, we'll definitely get to that because you pointed, you, you mentioned something very important, which is that, you know, these people who are dying of, of terminal illnesses, there are, there are only rumored reports of these medicines having any kind of measurable physiological effect right like i have heard a story of someone and uh, this is I, I have no evidence of this but i have heard a story of someone who was at the center at the same time that i was who did like a year long or six month long ayahuasca retreat and, and cured a cancer diagnosis you know she was not in chemotherapy or anything like that but you know they're saying oh she was cured of her cancer now i have no proof of that right because i didn't meet this person i didn't talk to them um, but it's something that people were talking about. But one of the things that is known about the psychedelic world is that it doesn't actually treat illnesses. It it it, it cr- treats, um, and you make a good point about the gap between medicine and, and spirit, that we're used to thinking of these, we might call them spiritual maladies as medical illnesses. And those are not the same thing. So, But when people talk about the benefits of, of ayahuasca and medicine, like, oh, it's good for treating illnesses. Like, no, it's it's not for that. That's not what people use it for. Don't confuse the terminology because you create this positive impression, you know, using the these these small narrow range of reported benefits as the foundation of using these these substances in a much wider fashion, which you got into with like 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 with Lex Friedman and stuff like that. Yeah. Um there's a author named uh, Rodney Stark, a sociologist. He also writes on church history. Um, but he has a phrase that he uses is that in the absence of organized religion, you get disorganized religion. And <laughs> yeah. so you, you don't get secularism, you get disorganized religion. Yeah. And I think we we're suffering as moderns. We suffer from that a lot where we, we don't have the right categories for spiritual experience or medical issue. We don't have the right category for what, how one should approach death. We don't, we're just, we're a disorganized religion, right? Like we've got this disorganized way of, of viewing life. And um, there's no, as a matter of fact, therapists and doctors are told not to mess with that stuff, right? Yeah. They're told not to help with that. So for them, they're, they're treating symptoms um, and they're, they have no idea about that spirit, those spiritual questions, um, or that, those religious questions, um, when questions of death and questions of meaning questions of purpose, those are only religious questions. Like right? those are only, those are not doctor questions. And those are not, those are, those are questions that we need insight for. And as a society, we don't have. Yeah. Doctors stopped treating people sometime in the past 30 or 40 years and and they started and they, and people became the battleground for a war on illness and that's what i say we don't have a healthcare industry we have a war on illness industry and the war takes place on the bo- in the bodies of people people are the battlefield so you so chemotherapy is a great example like chemotherapy is a is essentially like chemical warfare against cancer cells 
and your body is the battlefield. And the hope is that the battlefield will survive longer than the cancer cells. That is indicative of the entire medical philosophy to, to medicine now, right? It's industrialized. And so doctors can, and, and this is how you get the COVID insanity with, you know, grandmothers dying alone, you know, in, in nursing homes, unable to see their relatives because we have to wage this war on COVID and, you know, the, the, the humanity of the person, of these elderly people, you know, that's secondary to waging this war. It's completely dehumanizing. And in the face of that, I can understand why people who are sensitive or who are seekers or whatever would look towards these more tribal, indigenous, family kind of traditions for the answers that Western medicine uh, does not, cannot, and will not provide. But that doesn't mean there isn't a ditch on that side of the road, too. Yeah, it's a pretty big ditch on the other <laughs> side of the road. I, <laughs> I've had people, I've had Christians say to me, um, well, isn't it good that people give up their atheism? Isn't it good that people, um, you know, that people have spiritual experiences? Isn't, you know, isn't that better than them being atheists? And I always, the thing I say that a lot of Christians doesn't register with them, but I sincerely believe it is there's worse things out there than atheists. Yeah. You can be in a worse position. Than to be an atheist, and and I believe I sincerely believe that some people do by engaging in these practices get put themselves in a, a worse position overall than than if they were had never done them and just remained an atheist. Can confirm, and that's the Lex Friedman, right? So you have this really thin layer of um, of studies that indicate that these uh, substances Im- improve modern maladies depression and anxiety. And on that very thin, but scientific foundation, they build this whole transhumanist, we can take humans to the next level. And that I think is where things absolutely spiral off the rails very quickly. Yeah. Yep. And I think, you know, if you think about like Davos and and World Economic Forum and, you know, you and I were corresponding on Twitter about uh, that Yuval Harari um, guy um, who's a, who's a transhumanist at, at, who has spoken at World Economic Forum, and I think he has some formal association like the with them. Chief scientist um, or whatever, chief sadist. Yeah, yeah, and and he's very much a transhumanist, and um, I think that's where there is an effort of like, hey, what if these drugs can take us to the next level? What if it can, you know, what if it can make us superhumans? Um, and I think that's where a lot of this. The thought behind the thought is, or the the um, the real emphasis of a lot of this stuff has nothing to do with the therapeutics. I mean, like it, there would be, in my opinion, I'm very skeptical that if it was just about helping people quit smoke smoking cigarettes or feel a little bit better before they died, nobody would be writing books on this. There would be no yeah. excitement. This is this is much more than just a therapeutic solution for people. Yeah, exactly. Like I was, um, I was introduced to ayahuasca in 2015. Um, and even then, you know, this is before it became part of the public conscious. I had heard the term ayahuasca even well before that I, I, I had associations that it wasn't something that I wanted to do, but the opportunity came up in 2015. I was like, Oh, why not? But even in 2015, they were talking about this guy said an over harvest right? That it was, that it was being pushed too hard into the public. And so now seven years later, 
you know, gosh, that it's part of the World Economic Forum and Davos is truly scary because, you know, at least an atheist says there is no God, but the transhumanist says we will become gods. And that's worse, yeah. <laughs> right? That's a hardened yeah. position. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, th- you know, I think that, um, that Yuval Harari, that, you know, he wrote a book called Homo Deus, which is, you know, God, man or whatever, which which exactly his argument is that we already have become more powerful than the gods. And eventually we're going to get to be like uh, Zeus or whatever um, in, in that sense. Um, so there definitely is that view of transforming humans into gods. Um, and I think, I think one of the things that, you know, my, next kind of i just wrote an article on this and one of the things that i think my next project is going to be is how we have mixed magic and science together and how they never were really separate yeah. but we're taking kind of scientific ideas and we're mixing them like a lot of these one of the things i talk about in my in return of the dragon is that these the word for magic in ancient greece was pharmacia was the use of drugs for spiritual purposes mm-hmm. and so we're taking magic and we're applying some science to it and we're doing roughly the same thing magicians have always done which is manipulate the stuff to get something great and um people have always been doing that for all of generations and i i feel like we're unbounded by the church, unbounded by Christianity, unbounded by scriptural principles, un, un, unbounded by a God that cares about us, there's, there's no limit to what we can do. And there's no limit to the manipulation um, behind humanity and no limit to our efforts to transform ourselves into gods. Yeah. And all these guys, you know, all these guys, Graham Hancock, Rick Strassman, Noah Harari, all these guys, Michael Pollan, they all say the same, they all say the same thing that we, you know, we have to throw off. And it's not a, it's not new. Different people have been saying it, you know, essentially since the French Revolution, really. Um, but different people have been saying, oh, we need to throw off all these constraints of Christianity telling us who we are. We have to get rid of this out no, vo- outmoded notion of God and explore the cosmos within our own minds and explore our sexuality and throw all this stuff off. Like all these things go together. And we have to throw off the patriarchal order, like all these things. They're all very intricately woven together, and and I think um, in the same way, I'm reading this book right now. Um, I've t- I've talked about this before on my on my podcast last week, um, Libido Dominandi by E. Michael Jones. So what this book talks about is how sexuality, um, sexual liberation, essentially was used as a wrecking ball for Western traditional Christian values. Um, he frames he frames it in terms of Catholic values, um, but it's it's Christian values as well. And I think that that is probably reaching, it's probably reaching its its end point as we see a lot of this like transgender nonsense, right? And like the, the the end of the dialogue, end of the dialectic. I, I sometimes I wonder if psychedelics are the next wrecking ball they're going to try and use. That's an interesting comparison that you just made because that's one of the things I've pointed out on Twitter um, is that if you take a curve of the acceptance rate of gay marriage, for example, um, back in the 1970s, back in the 1980s, even the early 90s, 
a majority of people in the United States believed that homosexual acts, sodomy, should be illegal. A majority did. Today, a majority of people, overwhelming majority of people, believe that not only should it be legal, that gay marriage should be legal, that the whole thing, they're fully on board with it, it should be celebrated. So the, just within, I mean, we're talking about a 30-year period, within many people that are listening to this podcast lifetime, there has been a giant shift. I mean, yeah. even Barack Obama's first term, he ran against gay marriage. Like that's how fast all of this has changed. The cra- Here's the crazy thing. You compared the two, the same curve, slightly delayed, is happening on psychedelics, uh, where 10 years ago, everybody was against legalization. Everybody thought it was bad for you. Everybody um, was, you know, I, I was with my kids, I was watching old Saved by the Bell episodes, and they had an episode about pot that was just like pot was the worst possible thing that somebody could do. Like people were, it was, it was horrific on the episode with somebody was smoking pot and it was just like really, really bad, you know, real preachy. You know, yeah, remember yeah. those episodes yeah, from old TV shows, but, yeah. but now like, I can't imagine that episode. People would laugh at that episode. And yeah. I tell my kids, like as a kid driving around, I would see billboards. It was regular for billboards just to be say, don't do drugs or dare to stay off drugs or whatever. I can't remember all the campaigns. Now, like literally a majority of the billboards, I live in Michigan where pot is legal. A majority of the billboards are saying that pot is, is you know, they're, they're advertising buy pot from our store. Or sale. Don't leave, yeah, don't leave our town without saying hi. And they spell hi, H-I-G-H, uh, you know? So like um, those kind of, those kind of billboards are all over the place. Um, and we're talking about, I'm not that old. Like we're talking about like just that transition from me being, a teenager to today, there's been a giant shift in the attitudes towards pot, but it's not just pot. It is ayahuasca. It is psilocybin. It is, you know, like I, I mentioned earlier, people are just changing their views and the legalization curve is crazy as well. Like the number of places that had legal pot 10 years ago is like zero. And now it's the, almost every state has either legal for recreational, legal for med- medicinal, or has some kind of effort to legalize it, legislation working its way through the system. And the same is happening with other psychedelics. Um, Michigan has certain counties where psychedelics is decriminalized. Uh, Oregon has, uh, de- I think for the whole state, has decriminalized psychedelics. It's um, going to go real well. In, yeah, in, in Colorado, certain areas have decriminalized and they're working on um, the, uh, the whole state there. Um, so, and there's other places I'm forgetting it all, but like it, the same process that took place with pot is happening with stronger psychedelics. And I, you know, I think a lot of people is just like, well, why is it illegal? It's not addictive. It's good for you therapeutically. It's good for you spiritually. Um, and the comparison that people always do is like, Hey, you know, Alcohol is legal, so like people beat up their wives on alcohol. Nobody does that when they're on magic mushrooms, so why not legalize magic mushrooms? Right? That's the that argument is almost a hundred percent of the time. Anytime I have a debate or discussion with somebody on this, that's what gets brought up. Mm-hmm. And so, anyway, so that's a long answer to what you said, but that comparison between 
the sexuality and the transformation. And you're right that the sexuality has been a giant battering ram for Christianity. I can't tell you how many people I know that were Christian kids growing up that ceased to be Christian because the church is hateful towards homosexuals, right? That's what they told me is the church yep. hates homosexuals. I can't be a part of a church that hates homosexuals. So like that battering ram, or for that matter, I think a lot of people, they don't necessarily turn on Christianity, but they don't feel comfortable in church anymore because they're into porn that's almost universal all over the place on the yep. internet, or they're living with their girlfriend and they just don't feel comfortable. You know, So the, the sexual sins, whether homosexuality is a big one, but like they're also premarital sex and pornography are just widespread in culture. And I think it absolutely has been a very effective battering ram for the church. And I do think the next wave is psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I agree with you, Passion, that that people don't beat their wives on 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 mushrooms and, and pot. So that makes it okay. Like that's the lowest bar in the universe because not everyone who drinks alcohol beats their wives and they're right. Like, why is yeah. that? Why is that yeah. the standard? Like, and you know, I can, I can, I know why it's the standard, but I can, I go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, I wrote an article kind of explaining the differences in light of my book. Um, if people want to check it out on my Substack, but, um, I think, you know, the big thing I tell people is like with alcohol, yeah, there's downsides. And, you know, as Christians, the Bible warns lots of times about yep. not over drinking, not drinking too much. Don't be a drunkard. Drunkards won't enter the kingdom of heaven. Like those things are said in the Bible. Um, but the downsides for alcohol are well known, right? Yes. We've had them throughout our history, throughout the 2000 years of Christendom, um, going back to almost the beginning of civilization. We've always had alcohol as society, and we know exactly the downsides. We know. You know, I can tell you like how many drinks it will take for me to be in a bad state, right? Like we know what it is. Doctors know what it does to your brain, how long it lasts, that kind of thing. You can drink moderately. You can drink not at all, right? Like there's all these different things that you can do. And we know that society as a whole can function. We know sometimes there's some good things, right? You have a couple of drinks when you're in a social setting and like it's, it loosens the, the conversation a little bit, right? So yeah. like we know the ups and downs of alcohol. Introducing a highly spiritual transformative drug into society like it's alcohol is insane, right? Like it's, it's, it's mind-blowingly crazy, to just say, well, alcohol has some bad aspects to it. So let's introduce this kind of mind explosion to people with no care, no, you know, no forethought, no debate. Let's just do it. And that's what we're doing. Like we're, there's, there's no, and that's a big reason why I wrote this book was like, I'm, I'm, we need to have a debate on this. Like there needs to be this yeah. discussion. There needs to be a warning sign on this because we're just sleepwalking into this and it, it makes no sense at all. And it's uh, if, if my book's even half right, it's terrifying. Yeah. I, I, I think your book is, is very right. And I just, I want to point out something and then we'll get into the conclusions of your book, but I, I really appreciate what you said about how, uh, the difference between alcohol and psychedelics, because I also know how much it takes me to be in a bad state with alcohol. I know that, you know, the difference between one to two to five drinks, like it's a, it's shades of gray. Also, depending on the strength of the alcohol, you know, like three light beers is not going to do the same as like 
three shots of whiskey or whatever. But you know, you have a good sense from experiencing life what your limits are as an individual. You know, as long as you're older than like 18 or 21 or whatever, when you <laughs> tend to learn those things. But with psychedelics, mushrooms, weed, especially ayahuasca, you know, because it, it grows up the degree in terms of intensity of experience, you know, because, because weed, well, weed is hyper engineered nowadays. So who knows, but like, it's an all or nothing proposition and there's no, like, I'm going to sit down for about an hour and have a couple glasses of water and sober up. It's like, no, you're in it. You smoke like someone a, a couple years ago on 4th of July, someone dosed me with two THC gummies. Look me dead. I asked, are these are these regular gummies? And he looked me dead in the eye and said, yes. And so I said, can I have two? He said, yeah. Like 30 minutes later, I'm like, oh, fuck. Right? It was yeah. fucking eight yeah. hours. Fucking eight hours like yeah. in it, right? And like as I'm trying to navigate this, 24 hours, mushrooms is four to six hours. Uh, ayahuasca could be, you know, eight hours. Smoke DMT is subjectively 15, uh, sorry, objectively. Like if you're watching someone, it's 15 minutes subjectively for them, it could be days or years, right? You, you can't, you can't compare alcohol to any of these experiences because you are not in control. As soon as you swallow or smoke them, you have surrendered control to the substance at minimum and other things, you know, as, as Graham Hancock points out, you know, in the worst case. Yeah. And I, I, that's one of the things I pointed out is that there's a fundamental difference between alcohol and these a lot of these psychedelic drugs. And that fundamental difference is when you drink alcohol, even if you drink too much, the downsides are all this world downsides, right? So you drink mm. too much, you get in a fight. You drink too much, you cheat on your wife. You drink too much, you beat your dog. You drink too much, you drunk drive or whatever. They're all this yeah. world downsides. Right, they and bring those are you, bad. Like, if I anything, wanna, I don't want to minimize they, them. Yeah, I, I don't want to minimize them either. But they're they're all things that happen in this world with entities that have bodies. Right, they're all things that are real <laughs> things in this well in this world. Carnal things is it, it's a carnal. The sins you commit are carnal sins. Mm -hmm. um, the sins for almost everything else we've talked about. I would say everything else we've talked about. The potential downsides are with entities that aren't, don't have bodies, that aren't in this dimension, aren't in this world. And so when you, you take too many edibles or whatever, the, you're, you're not, you might not be beating your wife, you might not be drunk driving, but you, there's some risks that are every bit as real. But I would argue on a higher level, on, on like a, even a more profound danger. Um, and that's hard for people to believe. It's kind of like my yeah. atheist statement where there's like worse things than atheists. There's worse things than, than the downsized alcohol. There really are. And, and again, I, the Bible warns deeply about alcohol abuse, and I do too. Like, don't drink too much. Don't engage in any of the stuff I just talked about. But there's the levels of evil in this world. And I, I think when you start to look at the history of some of the abuse of some of these psychedelic drugs, you'll see that those levels can get far beyond a drunk driving charge. Hi, everyone. I just want to take a minute to tell you a little bit about the new digital conference series, 
Virtue is a lost word in our language, but it's so fundamental to who we are as both men and women. For many years, the manosphere and other parts of the men's movement postured vice as virtue, arrogance, boastfulness, materialism, superficiality, promiscuity, and more. But as I think we've all discovered, those are not values to build a civilization on. So wise men and women are looking for more. And really, I think they have been for a long time. But they couldn't articulate what it was that they were looking for. They didn't understand the eternal qualities of masculinity that previous generations took for granted. And that's why it's our privilege and responsibility to bring it back. This conference is intended to surface six essential masculine virtues that I think the speakers I've chosen exemplify. Because if you're going to learn how to do a thing, it's best to learn from an expert. I'm thrilled with the lineup. It features some of my most popular and downloaded guests of this podcast. It'll be an all-day event on Zoom from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific or noon to 8 p.m. Eastern. Drop in for whatever talks sound most compelling for you or spend the entire day with us. And the morning and evening will be bracketed by discussion panels from the speakers. In the morning, you'll get a preview of their talks, and then in the evening, you'll get an opportunity to ask questions of some of the wisest men I know. Men like Will Noland from Nolan Knows, who'll be speaking about resilience. Ryan King from The Wisdom of Kings, who'll be speaking about heroism. Nate Spearing from the Life on Target podcast, speaking about courage. King David, now John David Haskins, speaking about self-mastery. Lawson Speaks Truth, going hard on determination. And finally, Mike Pantile, speaking about something we'd all agree he embodies, boldness. I'm so thrilled to hear what these men have to say. They've approached this event with enthusiasm, and I'm incredibly thankful. Because it's time that we move beyond the posture that vice is virtue, and begin speaking about virtue directly. Resilience, heroism, courage, self-mastery, determination, and boldness are six essential virtues that every man can learn, which is why the theme of the conference is what men need to know. So I hope you'll join us all for this exciting moment. This is the start of something big. The second event is already coming together for May, and I can't wait to tell you more about it. But first things first. Once again, join us on Saturday, March 25th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific or noon to 8 p.m. Eastern for the first edition of the Renaissance of Men digital conference series. Go to renofmen.com conference to learn more and buy tickets today. Use the code podcast for $5 off. Once again, go to renofmen.com conference to learn more and buy tickets and use the code podcast for $5 off. You'll be hearing a lot more about this event in the weeks to come, and I look forward to seeing you for the kickoff in March. Yeah. I mean, as long as you're willing to accept that that's real and that's a, that's a big problem is that, we again, we've lost. Uh, there's a great book by Father Sarah from Rose called Nihilism, which I highly recommend. It's one of the, I've been working on it for a while. It's in, one of the best books I've read in a really long time. He was an Eastern Orthodox priest, and it's a it's a just a gripping conviction of all of Western culture and what has happened step by step during the decline of Christianity. And he he describes the process of how we got to essentially what we call scientism today, you know, where science is God. But what happens when you make science God is that people still have a, we might say, a mystical side to them, right? They might they they still seek that. It's built into us as beings. God designed us that way. But if you don't give them an outlet within Christianity, within religion, they snap into mysticism and occultism. And so that 
thing that you're talking about right now, you know, where people are like, oh, there's no such thing as, you know, disembodied beings. I'm just going to get high and have a good time. You know what I mean? It's like, well, that snap is about to happen as people actively begin communing with spirit so that people have to be made aware in the way that you're making them aware right now. Yes, there are consequences on higher planes of, of reality. And like, you know, Dawkins and Hitchens and all these guys, they're not in Harris. They're not relevant anymore. Yeah. Now we're talking about the guys that are actually talking about mysticism informing the human experience in a positive way and becoming transhumanists. Like that's where we are. And that's not really arguable anymore. And so I think it's important to, to highlight that for people who want to make that argument. Like, it's just a little bit of mushrooms, bro. What's the big deal? It's just, a, you know, I just tried it once. You know, it's like, well, you're messing with things that, um, and even it, whether you know it or not, they can come mess with you. You're in their house, right? Yeah. 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 Um, it is, uh, it's, it's the, a plane with fire that, um, it's kind of the, uh, that old phrase, um, fools rush in where angels fear to tread. Um, I think it's, it's, we're, we are rushing into something without any recognition of why it was banned in the first place of like, <laughs> why, why does Western civilization, why have we never, it's not like these things didn't exist. Hashish was present in the middle ages. Um, a variety of mushrooms were present in Northern Europe before the Christianization. Um, we, encountered mushrooms and ayahuasca and all that stuff when we uh, came to Mesoamerica. So we've had plenty of opportunities to engage in these things throughout Christian history. Why didn't we? Like, why Why did Christianity ban these throughout the years? And um, I think that's, that's a question that we need to ask. And that's a question that um, people, fools, fools rush in. People are just rushing in and not even asking um, if, was it just them being weird? Was it just old people being you know, like, uh, you know, Victorian fun spoiling bishops or whatever mm. didn't want us to have a good time on weekends? Is that what it was about, or was there something deeper? Um, and I, I think there was definitely something deeper. I agree. I agree. So let's start getting. And by that, we can talk about the Victorians later. But they were they didn't come out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, there were there were some yeah. things that they had observed that they had in mind. But we'll we'll save that for later. So let's start getting into the conclusions. Of your of the book, which um, which which sort of lays out like no, this is this is why this stuff was uh, was banned in the first place. <laughs> it wasn't to spoil fun on the weekends. There was there were a couple of things going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, so one of the things I I talk about in my book, I have a chapter. I think it's chapter four called Dimensions. Um, and I really tried to write my book so that you didn't have to be a Christian to understand it yeah. or to agree with it, right? So I I tried to lay it out just from as secular as you want to be quantum mechanics argues there's up to 10 different dimensions. Um, if you've heard the term, uh, dark matter, um, there is, uh, an idea that up to like 70, 80, 90% of the matter in the universe is in some other dimension, right. Mm -hmm. To make all the math work for the motion of the planets, that kind of stuff. So this idea that there's another dimension, um, this other space where things may be entities might be, is something atheists teach, atheists believe. Um, but it also matches very closely with what Christianity has always taught, right? It's always, or, or paganism has always taught, or Islam, or what you name the religion. Like, there's always been this idea that angels, demons, um, 
you know, depending on what religion, elves, um, nymphs, you know, mm-hmm. the, all that stuff that there was some other uh, dimension that was close to our dimension um, that contained other entities. So I touch on that in the book. And then I argue, I, I touch on the fact that um, a lot of a lot of the explanations for what happens with psychedelics, um, things that are very difficult to explain without this, kind of makes sense if somehow Graham Hancock talks about it um, as a tuning of our brain, mm-hmm. right? He says we can tune our, if you look at the brain as almost like a receiver of consciousness antenna. versus a, um, yeah, an antenna um, to consciousness rather than a consciousness producer, which I think is an interesting concept. If you think of that, um, if we tweak that antenna a little bit, maybe we can see into this other dimension, right? And I, I that, that's one of the things I started thinking about as I was, I was first putting down my thoughts for this book was like, if we can tweak that brain a little bit to see into that other dimension, maybe we're encountering real stuff. And when you do that, when you ag- acknowledge that as a possibility, as, as crazy as it is, it's, it's not that crazy. It kind sure. of like matches with science. It matches with like um, a lot of the, the theories that are out there. Um, once you recognize that, then you start to ask, okay, if I'm seeing real stuff, which we've touched on already, if I'm seeing real stuff, who are they? Like, what are these things that I'm seeing? And um, people that actually do these drugs say they're real stuff. They say they're real things. They describe them with a variety of names. So we touched on some of that. They'll say serpent-human hybrids well, um, or bird-human hybrids, animal-human hybrids. Um, well, go back and look at cave drawings. Look at the drawings in the pyramids. Look at the drawings in, in all of human history of their gods, of the entities that they interact with. And that is what they all saw. So like, if they're real and they're seeing them, what are they seeing? Well, it looks a lot like they're seeing the pagan gods of old. Yeah. It looks a lot like they're interacting with old pagan gods. And that's a very interesting thing. Like, if it's true that those old pagan gods aren't just, we always like assume they're just myths. Like, mm-hmm. there's just like you hear these stories, oh, the Romans are crazy. I can't believe they used to believe in that stuff. Or like, I can't believe that the Aztecs believed in these, these ancient gods. But what if they're, what if they actually were observing real stuff? And if if you rewind back and you say, okay, they did have these cults that had these psychedelic drugs, like the, the Romans did, the Greeks did, the Northern Europeans did, the Mesoamericans definitely did. Um, there's a lot of uh, data to back up that they were using some kind of mind-altering drug um, to help them to see into the spirit world. What if they're seeing real entities that are there? And if they are, like that's, a wild truth. And I would argue that a lot of the scientists we've talked about, Dr. Rick Strassman, um, you you look at the work that's been done at Johns Hopkins University, and I cite a lot of these people, um, Terrence McKenna, um, where they they speculate the same thing from an atheist perspective or from a non-Christian perspective, from a secular perspective. They're like, I think this is real. I think we're bumping into real stuff here. Um, Michael Pollan talks about that. I put a quote in there. It's like, at some point in time, we bump into something, Mm -hmm. right? Like we, you do enough of these drugs and you bump into something real that's outside of you. And so that's like, the base of what I, I believe, or I argue is like, there's this other dimension Somehow or another, these drugs allow us to see into that dimension and we see real stuff. Mm-hmm. And then 
once you get to that point, you have to ask the question, okay, so who are they? What are they? What do they want? Are they friendly towards humans? Are they uh, bad towards humans? So um, Joe Rogan, you listen to him. He's like, well, the, the entities, they, he tells a story of like how the entities made fun of him. And, you know, they, and he, he taught it as a good thing. Like they were teaching him to humble himself. Like he, they were making fun of him and he realized that he was taking himself too seriously. So like, so in, if, Joe Rogan's right. They're good entities. Like they're helpful entities. And I've talked to a lot of people and read a lot of accounts where people say exactly that, that these entities are helpful entities. They're there to help us. Um, they're beneficent. Um, they'll teach us lessons on life, lessons on love, teach us to care for one another, et cetera. Um, so that's one theory is that they're good and they're helpful for us. And, and a lot of people who do these drugs believe those and, and will say it passionately to me as like, no, they are good. They're good entities. Um, the flip side to that story, the flip side to that is if you, there's, there's a couple downsides that call that into question. Mm-hmm. One is Christian teaching on that. So one of the things that I talk about in my book is I, um, is that in the Greek Koine Greek of the New Testament, as well as um, a lot of people don't realize this, but the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but there was a Koine Greek translation called the Septuagint Mm -hmm. um, that was very popular at the time of Christ. The apostles quote the Septuagint more often than the Hebrew when they quote the Old Testament, Um, and in the Koine Greek. The word for witchcraft, um, well, first of all, I step back and I say, if you Google what the Bible says about drugs, often it will say nothing. Like people will quote the, the verses we talked about on restricting drinking. But if you look up that word for witchcraft, you'll see that it literally means, and I, I looked this up in the Greek translations. I, I studied Greek when I was at, at seminary, but you look this up in the lexicons of Greek and you'll find that the word that often gets translated for witchcraft goes something along the lines of drugs used for magical or spiritual purposes. Yeah. And the thing I point out in my book is this is not a case of translators choosing which one to work, use. So, you know, if if we came across the word bark, we would have to decide does that word mean the the outer layer of a tree or does it mean the sound that a dog makes? Right. But in the case of pharmacia, it's Drugs used for magical or spiritual purposes, it's not separate words. It's that magic and witchcraft in the ancient world almost always had some kind of medicinal drug-related component to it. It was how the witch doctors, how the medicine men, how the, the shaman saw what the gods wanted them to do is they took some drugs or they gave the drugs to the person for the person to take drugs. But somehow or another, the, there was drugs used in that witchcraft magical ceremony to the point where the language itself, the ancient Greek itself has the same word for both pharmakia, right? So the drugs for spiritual purposes. And once you realize that and you start to go through the Bible as a whole, whether it's the Greek Septuagint or whether it's the new Testament, and you start to look up the word pharmakia and all the various, um, uh, conjugations of that word, the warnings against drugs for spiritual purposes are insane. Like they're, they're next level insane warnings where it says um, 
do not allow the person who does pharmacia to live. <laughs> um, do not, you know, like pharmacia will lead whole nations astray, Nahum says. Um, there's a lot of verses where it, ta- it, can, it simultaneously warns against pharmacia and human sacrifice. It says, don't um, practice pharmacia or lead your, or, uh, lead your children through the fire. So in other words, sacrifice them in the fire. Um, in the New Testament, um, Paul says, those that practice pharmacia uh, will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Um, in Revelation, it says pharmacia will lead whole nations astray. There's a couple of warnings against leading the whole nation astray, what pharmacia does. And so kind of what I step back in my book and I say, well, are the Christians crazy? Like, <laughs> what, 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 why are the Christians, like, why does their scripture warn so heavily or the ancient Hebrews or whatever? Like, why is there this giant warning against Drugs for spiritual purposes, if they've got this therapeutic help and like a spiritually it helps, the entities seem good. Like, why are they warning against it? And I talk about the fact that ancient Hebrews, if you were to tell them, if you were to say, Hey, I had a spiritual experience, they would not say, Oh, great, that's so sweet. They're like, <laughs> Awesome. Can I have a spiritual? They wouldn't say that. They'd say, Okay, well, what what spirit was it? And in in and that question of like, what spirit was it is an important question of like, is what kind of spiritual experience are you having? That's something we don't ask in modern America. Like the, the idea of asking like, what kind of spirit was it? What are you talking about? It was just a good spiritual experience, yeah. right? So that's, that's one thing that Hebrew would ask. The other thing that Hebrew would say is like, okay, so how do you know it was a good spirit? And you say, well, it helped me. It helped me with my anxiety or like, it seemed really nice when it was talking to me or it made me feel more confident when I was done. And um, the um, the response that the ancient Hebrew would say was, well, it's probably not a good spirit then. <laughs> because in the Bible, in the ancient world of, of Christianity, good spirits would be like angels. And almost always people are terrified of angels. Yeah. Right. Almost always people, when they see an angel, the angel has to quickly say, don't fear, don't be afraid, don't worry. Like it's going to be okay because people, their first response to angels is to drop to their knees and in fear and terror. In contrast, the entities from the other world that seem very reasonable and nice and wise and helpful are demons. Like over and over, like the demons, when you run into them in the Bible, the demons always are like, nice and pleasant and thoughtful. You know, you think of like Eve in the garden where the, the entity is like, Hey, why don't you try the fruit? Like, it'll help you. You'll think like a God. And like, mm-hmm. that seems like in modern America, telling a woman to empower herself by learning more, challenging the patriarchy. Like those are good things that that demon was offering her. And, you know, Jesus in, in his temptation in, in Luke chapter four, for example, the, Satan comes to him and he's like, hey, I've got helpful things for you. Like you could turn this bread in, or turn that stone into bread. Or if you follow me, I can help you conquer the whole world. That's your objective, right? Like you conquer the world. Like I can help you with that. And so the, the demons in scripture are good and helpful and wise. And so for us to say, well, the entity I saw while I was on these drugs was like good and helpful and wise, 
would not sway an ancient Hebrew at all. Like they wouldn't be like, oh, okay, well, I guess it was good. Like they would say the opposite. They'd be like, whoa, wait a second. That sounds disturbing to me. Um, and, you know, the, the evaluation of those um, entities would be, would be a big part of the Hebrew evaluation of it. Um, now, an interesting thing you touched on, this is not in the book, but I wrote an article on this separately. You touched on Seraphim Rose, uh, Father Seraphim Rose. Um, he wrote another book um, called The Soul After Death, and he talks about kind of the historic Christian teaching on the location of entities. And he said, for the most part, we're surrounded by demons, not by angels, and that angels are sent by God. Um, but if we're not, you know, if we're not employing prayer or, or godly paths to see, um, have a spiritual experience, if we're doing something maybe that God prohibited, like pharmacai, uh, the entities we encounter will not be good entities. Mm-hmm. They won't be, they'll be demons. And he touches on the fact that they will pretend to be good, mm-hmm. that often they do pretend to be good. Um, and, you know, so, so that's the Christian teaching. And f- for me in the book, I'm like, okay, there's a warning point. Like that's, that should be a warning. Like if you take the Bible seriously, if you take scripture seriously, but maybe you don't, right? Like maybe you're an atheist or maybe you're a pagan or maybe you think the Bible's out of date. So the other data point I included was history. And I take what societies widely embraced pharmacia, what societies widely embraced this um, using drugs for spiritual purposes. And the history there was mind blowing. Yeah. Like the history, when you start to go through um, the, the use of drugs for spiritual purposes and you start to see what happens over and over again, it's incredibly disturbing. Um, as you go around the world and whether I've mentioned a bunch of different areas, Northern Europe, um, Mesoamerica, the Aztecs, the Northern uh, North American tribes, um, they use these psychedelic drugs. They see entities. Interestingly, you know, we talked about Eve in the garden. Interestingly, they often see serpents. Um, the the um, presence of serpent deities, the presence of serpent gods in the ancient world is incredible. It's all over the place. It's every society had it to some degree or another. And um, I cite a book um, by a guy named Leslie Wilson. Uh, he um, was a scholar at Yale, um, and he wrote a book called, I'm trying to remember the name of it. I think it was um, The Serpent Symbol in the Ancient Near East, I think is the name of the book. But I cite him, and he talks about the fact that the serpent entity and human sacrifice blend together in the ancient world, that the serpent entity always asks for human sacrifice, that there's there's like there's this tying together of those two things in the ancient world. And he's mostly focused on the ancient Near East, which would be the area that the Bible was written. So it kind of makes sense of a lot of the stuff that comes from the Bible, a lot of the warnings about pharmacia. Um, But then also what I found was that that wasn't just the ancient Near East. It's present in Northern Europe. It's present in Mesoamerica. Um, One of the articles I have online, I, I, if I write a, a second edition to this book, I'll add this as a chapter, but I go through in great detail what the Spanish experienced when they first entered the Aztec world 
and there was this massive human sacrifice going on. They, they had a serpent entity. There was massive human sacrifice, 250,000 people a year. Some people think they were sacrificing <laughs> estimates vary a little bit, but like giant Not numbers of people were being, being, being sacrificed. Um, and a lot of times they go to war just to get people to sacrifice. You know, that's was part of the purpose of, of going to war. Um, but the thing that the Spanish recognized is that they would take mushrooms and they, those mushrooms sometimes had the name of, of the serpent or the dragon. Um, and they'd take these mushrooms and the Spanish said they'd take these mushrooms and it would cause them to go insane and they'd go eat people or they'd go get really violent and murder each other. And so the Spanish observed kind of what my whole book is, is saying is like there, there was the, this use of drugs for spiritual purposes that then inspired some of this terrible violence that took place. And so I talked about the two different points that I had. One was what the scripture said, but the Christian Bible said, and one was kind of just a historical look. And that second one, the historical look is a big challenge to people like Graham Hancock and a big challenge to people like Joe Rogan, where Graham Hancock went on Joe Rogan show and he said, Hey, if, if we could just get all politicians to take ayahuasca, the world would be so much better, right? Like if we could oh, yeah. just get everyone to take ayahuasca. And my challenge to him is we have, it's called the Inca, and they sacrifice people at an industrial rate, right? Like we, we have, we've taken, you know, the Aztecs took magic mushrooms and sacrificed people at an industrial rate. So like, it's not like we have not tried to expand people's consciousness or open people's minds. As human beings, we have. And it's hard to imagine how you could be less enlightened than sacrificing 250,000 innocents a year um, at the altar for the sun god mm-hmm. or for a serpent deity. Like, it's hard, hard to imagine that. And so those two data points put together, I, I say, well, based on those two, we should be careful. We can't just sleepwalk into this. You know, if these entities are real, if it's not just in your brain, as science is showing, as religion has shown, as philosophy has shown, if, we, if it's not all in your brain, look out, right? Like, look out and take the warnings of scripture like the warnings of Pandora's box of if, you know, if you're watching an Indiana Jones movie and he comes across a tomb that says, don't enter or you'll be cursed. You know, something's bad's going to happen. If he enters that take scripture, take these warnings of history as that, right? Like if we just sleepwalk into this and we say, well, it helps quit smoking. Like, so like, let's do it. Or like, it's not as bad as drinking. So let's do it. And we just enter this. Um, we are taking a risk of epic proportions. And if the Bible's, if you take the Bible seriously at all, it says it will lead whole nations astray. I I found that conclusion in the book when you tie those three things together, that um, psychedelics, uh, serpents, vision of serpents, and human sacrifice. Like I thought, I I was taken by surprise by that actually. I didn't really know what to expect going into the book. And when you started laying that case out, you know, I was I was uh I wasn't skeptical because I was predisposed against the theory. I was being skeptical because um 
I wanted to make sure that it was solid. Like I'm going to apply as much of my mind to this as I can to see if there's any air gaps in this because it's so significant. And I did that, you know, and, and, uh, I didn't find any gaps in it. In fact, it was frightening how, how strong and undeniable that conclusion is. And, and just to make it really clear for the listeners, the conclusion that you came to is that psychedelic use, visions of serpents, and human sacrifice are tightly linked around the world, not just in Mesoamerica, but also in Northern Europe. I think you also, did you provide an example in Asia? And also in 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 the Middle East, like yes. in, like yep. this is a thing. This is a global thing. Human sac take sac. We take we take mushrooms or whatever local psychedelic is available. We see the vision of the serpent, and then we conduct human sacrifice. That's what they did. And you have other examples, I think, yes. from from Greece or something like that. Like you provided lo- yeah. lots of examples. Uh, honestly, like when you look, there are at least hints, if not yeah. hard proof. There's at least hints that there was the use of drugs for spiritual purposes almost everywhere. Like it's so widespread. It's amazing. Like it was, it truly is shocking when you start to look into like at least the indication that people were using drugs for spiritual purposes in almost every corner of the world. Um, And I, I do, I, I, I'm cautious with that. Like historians disagree with everything about everything. You know, you can't find two historians that agree on everything perfectly, but there's at least indications of drugs for spiritual use, per, drugs used for spiritual purposes, almost everywhere you go. Shamanism is a very widespread practice, and shamanism, more often than not, uses hallucinogens in the work that it does. Oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Oh, and I think what's now to be clear, when I during my experiences in ayahuasca, I did not have any impulses to commit human sacrifice. Yeah. that wasn't that wasn't part. Part of it, yeah. I didn't. I was walking around looking, but I, I think what it, it's it's indicative that um, the serpent spirits. Now, there's a there's a, a film. I think it's a fictional film, half fiction, half documentary, maybe called "The Embrace of the Serpent," which is a film about ayahuasca. It's a, it's, it came out around the time I think 2016, 2017, something like that, and not in that time time frame. And um, it's acknowledged as a serpent, the ayahuasca vine looks like a serpent itself. Like that's, that's one of the metaphors of it. And so I think the, the case that you're making, whether or not people who take these drugs actually begin engaging in, in human sacrifice, the case is that these serpent deities that we interact with through these psychedelics have a will and desires of their own, right? Which is contrary to human flourishing to the human good. Cause you can't say that you know, mass human sacrifice on an industrialized scale, which is not historically arguable. That is not the sort of thing, well, historians disagree. That is what these, especially the Mesoamerican civilizations did. They are worshiping these spirit gods through anti-human practices, serpent gods through anti-human practices with the use of psychedelics. Like it's, it's, it's shocking, you know, how much of that was going on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I, I think the, um, the other, because th- I touch on exactly what you just said, where like, I never had the impulse to sacrifice my child to Molech or whatever. Like, <laughs> that's something I, it's similar to the, you know, alcohol is bad too argument. A lot of people will say that. Well, like, I had nothing but positive results um, from my psychedelic 
encounter or whatever, like the, you know, Joe Rogan, like the entities helped me be more humble or whatever. Aubrey Marcus. Um, never, yeah, never, never caused me to kill anybody. And the thing that I like touch on in the book is, is a couple points there. Um, number one, um, if you, if you take kind of the warnings, both from the old Testament and the new Testament, that it leads whole nations astray. Um, you, and you take, you say these entities are like gods, right? That's what pagan religions describe them as gods. Um, Christians might describe them as demons, but you take them as very intelligent entities. Um, step number one for them might not be, hey, you took the drug, go kill a baby, right? Like that might not be step number one for them. Step yeah. number one for them might be, hey, open your mind, love, love everybody. You know, what religion you worship doesn't matter. You know, like it just, just be open-minded and you know love love everybody and like that might be step number one and it helps expand like yeah if if step number one was kill a baby like we probably would illegalize this and keep it illegalized really but point. step number one is like love everybody right which seems wonderful right. like it seems like this great thing so it expands so um so that's number one number two the other thing i said is like if if you take them with the theory that they're hostile towards humans, at least be skeptical of the advice they give you. Yeah. Even if it's not sacrifice a baby, would it, like some of the examples I put in my book was like um, Michael Pollan went through the Johns Hopkins study and he took people that had gone through the psilocybin experiments and kind of interviewed them and found out like what their lessons were. And one lady took um, the psilocybin and she came out and um, she had this profound experience and her husband was a little bit late picking her up from the experiment and she realized she needed to divorce her husband. Like that Literally. was the big lesson she came away from it was like, I don't have time for this guy anymore. Like he, he should have been there. So her lesson was to divorce. And so I don't know if she had kids or not, but broke up a family, violated vows that she had made financially or whatever. Like, and if you assume that all spiritual experiences are good, like I think Michael Pollan does in that book, um, How to Change Your Mind, um, then she did the right thing, right? Like the entities were good. They told her a good thing. She learned and she grew as a person. If you assume they're good. But if you approach them with skepticism, if you say maybe they hate humans, like maybe they're not good entities, then you look at that advice and you say, maybe they just destroyed her life. Maybe they just destroyed the life of her children. Maybe they just like caused her husband to commit suicide. Maybe they just like, maybe that was the darkest thing she could have done at that moment. And if you start with just a little bit of skepticism, another guy like was a military contractor, quit his job as a military contractor and became a Zen Buddhist monk um, after taking the psilocybin, which if you had a kid who was like, hey, dad, should I quit my job as a military contractor or become and become a Zen Buddhist monk? I think all of us would say, whoa, 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 don't do that. Or a brother or whatever. Like, we'd be like, whoa, 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 don't give up your job. Like, that's a bad choice. Change careers, maybe. And, yeah. Yeah. It, but like the, the idea of us just like assuming like that's a good choice for him depends very much on assuming those are good spirits. Yeah. That those spiritual those spiritual experiences that they had were good, and if you have just a little bit of skepticism of like maybe they're bad, some of that advice might be the worst possible advice that you could give, and 
again, sleepwalking into it of like, hey, I had this spiritual experience that told me to quit my job or told me to um, divorce my husband or told me to, you know, whatever it is, open, even like something simple, like open your mind or live in the moment. Those sound like Hallmark card greetings, like like very nice things, right? But sometimes like not living in the moment, being forward thinking, sometimes that's necessary. Sometimes having a closed mind of like not being open to weird ideas at the moment, sometimes that's a defense mechanism that's a helpful mechanism. And just assuming that the spirits are right when they say open your mind or live in the moment assumes that they're good. They could be the evil like trying to destroy you and if you if you don't approach it with skepticism what seems to you to be good and wise just like eve in the garden the serpent said hey check out that fruit over there it's it'll make you like a god or jesus in the temptation check out that stone it could become bread like those that wisdom in the moment may turn out to just be a disaster I really appreciate you saying that because the case that I've been trying to make is that, um, you know, that these entities are, they are intelligent. They are, I believe they are real. They, they do exist on a a different plane of reality, which means they do have, they have an information advantage over us, right? They know things about us that we don't know about ourselves. They know things about reality that we don't know about reality. And so when we're, talking with these spirits if you if you have the if you go in with a default assumption that everything that they'll do for our, is for our benefit then that's really naive because you have no proof of that at all besides like well i had all these benefits or i heard about someone doing that like you you really really don't know so you're going into this and you're going I, this is a twitter thread that i did you know, you're you're going into the situation with with a with a disembodied spirit that has an information advantage over you that you have no way to follow up with them you know, if they give you bad advice and you follow the advice, what are you going to do? Like, you're not going to take the ayahuasca again and show up at the door and be like, hey, that was terrible advice, you know? Yeah. And so you're no accountability. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. And so then you go, then you go do that. And let's even assume like in the case of like Joe Rogan or like Aubrey Marcus, you know, on, on the Aubrey Marcus podcast that he did, he did with um, Aaron Rodgers, he was relating this experience that the whatever, Mama Ayahuasca or the grandmother spirit was showing him all these horrific ways to die, sliding down, sliding naked down this tree, you know, being ripped open, like bugs burrowing out through his eyes, grueling things that this was putting him through. And then, and then, and then the spirit told him that he had cancer. And then he finally broke down. He, he relates this in his own words, Aubrey Marcus does, to Aaron Rodgers. Like this is recorded. And then he breaks down like, no, no, I don't have cancer. No, no, no. And it's freaking out on ayahuasca. It was like freaking out on psychedelics is not a fun experience. And then he finally, and then he finally surrenders like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to die. And then, and then he says, the ayahuasca spirit says, you're so silly. We love you. You're not going to die. And then on the back half of that, this is, this is the part that people miss. It was during that first ayahuasca ceremony that he, and the Aubrey Marcus says in his own words, how he could be successful with founding his company on it, right? So break, like he actually says this and then, you know, he gets all this information. He doesn't say what it is about how he can build a successful company and become a multimillionaire. And it's like, it's like, okay, like that sounds a lot to me, like a pledge of allegiance to the spirit than to advocate for it. And then you get rich in response. Maybe he wouldn't frame it that way, 
But is that really for Aubrey Marcus's benefit to have been given all his blessings and now to be putting that out there into the world and to be one of the chief proponents of this? Like these are his own words. Like I'm not making this up and I'm not putting words in his own mouth. This is him relating his own experience. And people don't question this. Like, oh, okay, I'm not going to listen to what Jesus says or what Moses and the prophets say, but I'll listen to what a disembodied plant spirit says. Makes perfect sense. It's it's insane to me. It's insane. Yeah, yeah. It is. Um, it's once you start to think of it with skepticism, a lot of that stuff that seems like oh, this cool, nice, wise wisdom you learned becomes slightly terrifying, right? Like once you realize, yeah. oh, that's where it came from. That's what the idea came from a, a disembodied entity that you interacted with. That well, that's that's a little disturbing. You know that that as something that um, I think we. Um, we need to have that skepticism. Um, one of the things you touched on earlier is like, hey, we're not sacrificing people. And I do have an interesting thing in my book that I just touch on for maybe a paragraph or two because I was just reading about it as I was publishing the book. So I couldn't include that much, but I, I do have another article I wrote about it on my website. Um, but the founder of Planned Parenthood um, is a woman Sanger. named uh, Margaret Sanger, um, and she um, was a big believer in eugenics. Um, so she was a big believer that it was bad for humanity to be having all these um, kind of poor people, children of prostitutes, uh, too many black people, etc. So her idea was yeah. um, to kind of clean up those underclasses um, by um, limiting the fertility. Um, and she was a believer in abortion um, at a time when nobody else believed in abortion. You know, this was like before abortion was at all socially acceptable. And um, so she was founding Planned Parenthood and she wanted to do it with abortion. Um, but she consulted her friend, her lover, um, her mentor, um, a guy named Havelock Ellis. Um, and Havelock Ellis um, was an English intellectual, um, academic, um, who wrote on sexuality and a lot of, a lot of, you know, bohemian kind of sexual um, stuff, you know, so the uh, free love movement way before the free love movement was, was popular. And she consulted him and the two of them kind of mapped out um, Planned Parenthood and Havelock Ellis kind of helped her realize that she should not start with abortion. She should start with birth control. Um, he just mm -hmm. thought abortion was too much out of the gate. But he was very in favor of abortion as well. But he thought, hey, you know, we can do this step by step. We can do this progressively. Um, and so thanks to Havelock Ellis, Planned Parenthood became a thing. And then Planned Parenthood now today is the largest abortion provider in the country, probably the world. I'm not sure. Yeah. I, I can't speak to the world, but definitely in, in this country. Um, now, why am I bringing this up with regards to psychedelics? Havelock Ellis was a psychedelic pioneer. Havelock Ellis wrote papers, experiments, all kinds of things on psychedelics way before the 1950s and 60s, way before um, any of the Harvard psilocybin experiment, way before any of the psychedelic movement of the 1960s. Havelock Ellis was doing mescaline and experimenting on friends with mescaline and writing about his stories, you can go read his accounts with mescaline and that kind of stuff. So we talk about human sacrifice and we talk about psychedelics and like, hey, I wouldn't sacrifice my kid 
um, to um, the god Molech or whatever. Um, it's it's an interesting data point. You know, like it's an interesting thing that the largest abortion provider in the world really got to start thanks to a guy that was a psychedelic pioneer. Yeah. Margaret Sanger was a real piece of work. And uh, yeah. she abandoned her own daughter. And, and, uh, and what, what we know as Planned Parenthood wasn't originally called Planned Parenthood. It was, um, I was like, it was like the ant, it was like the, the birth control league or something is what they called yeah. it. And it was, completely funded by the Rockefellers. All that is in that is in the E. Michael Jones book, Libido Dominandi, like completely documented, sourced everything, like quotations from from exactly Margaret yeah. Sanger and the people who inspired her. And you know, you got me thinking about, well, you look at the devastation the cultural devastation of the 1960s. You know, you look at Woodstock, you look at um psychedelic rock, you look at Charles Manson, you look at Jim Jones. Like all legalization of abortion, legalization of abortion. Absolutely. The divine feminine feminism, all this stuff like, you know, and, and, uh, no fault divorce was in 1969. I think that was Reagan, governor Reagan of California at the time. Like all of these, all these things came up were, were co-terminal with, uh, with psychedelic use exploding. Now it didn't start in the sixties. A lot of this research was being done in the fifties. That's what all the beat poet guys were doing like Kerouac and, Ginsburg, they were all experimenting with these things. And, you know, like um, Timothy Leary was funded by the CIA. And then you have like Ram Doss, you know, all these guys, like all this stuff. This is, these did not come from good places. You know, it wasn't, these were not good guys just bravely, you know, venturing into the world. And Terrence McKenna having this kind of like heroic kind of, kind of cast to him, like, what happened? Like, where was Terrence McKenna's family? <laughs> you know, like I, I, last I checked, I don't think his son's doing so great. And so all these people who, pro, who promote these alternative lifestyles, these practices, like the fruit in their lives is just devastation. And Margaret Sanger is yeah. a, a great example of that. Yeah. 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 That parallel between psychedelic embrace of the 1960s and seventies and so many things that are harmful, that whole idea of pharmacia will lead whole nations astray that uh, Nahum chapter three says revelation chapter. Um, I think it's chapter 18 says like that whole idea that it will lead whole nations astray. It seems, seems like it did. <laughs> like, it seems like it, like when you look at kind of, maybe it's a coincidence, but it sure is weird that all these movements started by people with people that were doing psychedelics, people were practicing pharmacai, people were doing these things. And it's that out of that same place that's so many harmful and, you know, in the case of abortion, you know, uh, sacrificial things were, were being taking place. It's, it's pretty, pretty crazy. So. Yeah. And, and that the world economic forum is doing a panel on psychedelic use. I think is, is all you really need to know because you know, they invest a lot of time and money and in, in putting forth things that seem like they're for the public good, but that are ultimately for wearing down the boundaries of national sovereignty. And and one of the things that I wanted to say is that, you know, what these psychedelics are is they're boundary dissolving technologies. That's what they do. They 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 break down that's that's the ideology that's attached on the back end of whatever healing. Oh, you know, they made fun of me and they taught me to be you know, humble and to love everybody. Like, yeah, that all sounds really good, but the ideology that comes along with it 
is we are all one, you know, and boundaries between people are artificial. And so it, you get these boundary dissolving ideas between self and other, and it naturally follows that what you get from that is boundary dissolving between nations, right? And yeah, it seems like you've, you've given some thought to this as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and I like what you've said in the past. I didn't cover this in the book at all, but just that divine feminine, um, you've brought it up a couple of times here, is very true. There's like a feminizing aspect to a lot of this where the gods, you, li- you read Graham Hancock and he talks about how important it is that women were the ones that were pushing ayahuasca or were teaching people in in Northern Europe. Like they were, and if you think about our iconography of witches, it's always women, right? They're mixing the brew in the woods. What were they mixing? Well, like, you know, there's a good case, Brian, you read Brian Murrescue who wrote uh, the immortality key. He, he makes the case that they're making psychedelics in those woods. So like that, um, that case of, um, of, of, Divine feminine is something that is very common with the use of psychedelics throughout history. And in the case of um, modern America, you look at so much of the gender stuff, so much of, of your work is like teaching men to be men. Well, in previous generations, we didn't need to do that. Like the men were taught to be men, um, but that's fading away. And you know, when you look at, for example, one of the things I've, I've pointed out, people say, well, pot never hurt anybody. But one of the things I pointed out is like a lot of times these mass shooters that you see were heavy pot users and they didn't have a dad, right? Like that. And their dad probably was a heavy pot user. And like, there's, there's a, a wearing away at masculinity that also seems to be taking place with the use of psychedelics. Um, and I, I don't think it's a coincidence. I don't, I don't think that it's just, happens to be happening at the same time i think i think it's there's a causal effect um between a lot of these psychedelics and the undermining of masculinity and and maleness and and it, this isn't just me talking terence mckenna says that uh graham hancock says that um guys that are really into these drugs say this same thing that you're saying which is is this divine feminine um, has a real impact and in their mind is necessary, right? Like God is too macho, you know, the Christian God is too macho, Jesus, male God. That's why men have oppressed women all these years. So we need a female God finally. And um, that's one of the promises um, of psychedelics that Graham Hancock sees or Terrence McKenna sees. But um, we're seeing the devastation of that when you undermine true masculinity, you just have a society that falls apart. Yeah. Uh, there's a great book called Revolt of the Primitive uh, by, a, I think his name is Howard Schwartz, and he wrote it in um, 2000, 2001. And I, I give a whole talk about this book and some of its implications um, that I'm working on putting into a YouTube video. But he calls it the sexual holy war. And that's what we're looking at. Is we're literally looking in our society. You can look around and you can see it everywhere of a sexual holy war between God the Father and the divine feminine. That is what's happening. And in a sexual yeah, holy war, yeah, it's a fascinating book. He's talking about it from a um from a Freudian perspective because he's a he what, what his background was, he was a psychologist, but he did a lot of work within corporations. And again, that he's writing in like 2000, 2001. So coming off the back half of the 90s, and he's kind of observing some of the 
you know, some of the 20th century feminist trends, as I recall, and, and trying to articulate them from a purely psychological, like, you know, they would be a book that would be totally at home in the hands of uh, like Jordan Peterson. Like everything is a psychological phenomenon, right? It's kind of the position. So it's not a spiritual phenomenon. But my conclusion from that book is we are looking at a sexual holy war. And here's the important thing about a sexual holy war. There are no truces in a secular sexual holy war, in a holy war. There's no, there's no compromise. Like in a holy war, you have to obliterate your enemy. None left standing that convert or die. That is a holy war. And so we're looking at that, you know, with these guys, you know, like the Graham Hancocks and the Terrence McKenna, like, oh, we need a female God now. We need to smash this macho God. Is that ringing any bells? You know what I mean? And in the same way, like this macho God, you know, this masculine God, God, the father and his son, Jesus Christ, you know, sort of having something to say about this divine feminine force that uses psychedelic tools. Like, are we starting to get a sense of the stakes now? And so this erasure of maleness, like I keep telling guys that people don't want to listen to me. I keep saying we're not in a cultural war. We're not in a political war. We're in a spiritual and religious war. And you got to get that right now. And this makes it really clear. That's a really interesting insight, and it's, it's definitely true. And um, a lot of holy wars we think of as like dumb religious people debating stuff that shouldn't be debated or whatever. Um, but I think in this case, it's a it's a true battle between the gods, right? Like it's true. It's it's are you with Mother Ayahuasca or are you with uh, the the God of Israel, you know, like which which God are you um, going to follow? And you know, just like we talked about, what spirit you you know you had a spiritual experience. I think anytime we use the word God, we should qualify it with which God, because um, there's some gods that have very different outlooks um, to the God of of Scripture and the God of the Bible. Yeah, I, very different. Very. I mean, the total we talk about. Oh, men have uh, men have subjugated women for whatever you know, thousands of years or whatever. Now it's time. Is it, is it time for women to subjugate men? Is that, is that, is that turnabout is fair play? So subjugation is okay now, right? That's the whole woke ideology, right? Like, you know, excluding minorities is is bad. So we're going to call white people minorities and exclude them. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, that's, I mean, that's what you see with, you know, as you talk about woke, and you talk about the religious elements of that, um, it does have that element of for lack of forgiveness, yeah. right? That's the amazing thing about Christianity where there's um, from the cross, Jesus said, forgive them for they know not what they do. And, you know, as, as Christians, we, you know, we're told by Jesus, how we forgive other people is, you know, how we will be forgiven, right? Like we're, we should be a people that kind of personify forgiveness in the world. That does not exist in the woke religion. That does not yeah. exist in a lot of other religions. Where it's you, you know, you violate their laws, you violate their gods, and you will never be forgiven. There is no coming back from that, and it's a, a merciless aspect. And so you think of like, um, like you were saying with you know the the racism or whatever. So if white people oppressed black people in the past white people should get it now right like mm-hmm. oh you 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 you're bummed out that in waukesha the guy ran over a bunch of kids in the parade well white people did that kind of stuff to black people so you deserve it right and you know like this mind-blowing stuff or the gender stuff like black, uh, men oppressed women in the past so like 
now, oh yeah, you're complaining. This is what you deserve. Um, and it's a, it's a, a forgivenessless um, existence. And it's, t- it's unpleasant to say the least, <laughs> you know, to, it's not a kind of place you want to live in. That's right. That's right. There's no, there's no forgiveness. There's no redemption. It's, it's permanent subservience because there's no mechanic for it. There's no, me- there's no mechanism for it. Like how often can you apologize for what you are until so, and, and who grants the forgiveness? I've apologized to 50 women today and 50 black people. Is that enough? Do I check my box? Do I just get a punch card? It's like, no, I've, I'm finally forgiven. It's like, well, no, there's one more person. So you're walking around just to the issue for women alone. Like how many women, how many women did I spend my whole life in apology and in, in, in ongoing apology for, if not in, if not in words and in my very existence. Right. And, and, um, and that, that's, that's the state that many of these guys are in. It's like, I'm sorry for being a man. I will neuter myself and I will be less of a man. And then, and then you'll forgive me once I've destroyed myself. And that's it. That is literally it. And they won't. Right? Like they won't. <laughs> right. Even if after you destroy themselves, they'll kick you while you're down. You know, that's right. It's just, there's, there's no, no forgiveness. That's right. Yeah. And Albie Marcus posted something on his, um, on his Instagram that he does at his annual gathering in Sedona or something like that. And it's, it's literally a bunch of women standing in a big circle. Like it's at least 200 women standing in a big circle and all these men, their boyfriends or men at the festival or whatever are literally bowing down at these women's feet, literally bowing down. Like that's what's going on. And these women are you know, touching their heart or like they're crying. You know what I mean? it's like, so what happens after that? Do the guys get up and like, okay, good. I've apologized. Like, let's, let's be friends now. It's yeah. like, no, you spend the rest of that festival re- recognizing who you just, who you just made your God. It's a, it's a, it's a woman, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Which reminds you, you know, the photos of the police or people bowing down to black people during yes. the George Floyd riots, right? Like this similar, similar thing. And it's, um, yeah, just so destructive. And again, it gets back to that whole idea of like without organized religion, there's disorganized religion. And you need Christianity to frame all these things. You need it to frame what do we do with injustice when it happened in the past? Or what do we do with um you know, how do we how do we deal with um a society when one group has wronged another group? And if you don't have Christianity to frame that, there's there's you know the you can range to complete murder, complete destruction of that. You know that you guys oppressed us, so now you're gonna die, right? Like that—that's a very realistic thing that's happened many times in history, right? Um, where you know, one society will wipe out another society um, in revenge for something they did, um, and it happened. You know, like that happens all the time. And you see, um, the flip side of that is like forgiveness, um, amazing forgiveness. You know, you'll see cases where. Um, you know, someone is incredibly wronged by another person. Um, Rwanda is a good example of that. Where, kind of both cases, right? So there was horrible butchery in Rwanda, but then there was this amazing Christian moment at the end where, um, I can't remember which group, the Hutsis or whatever, but the two tribes that had massacred each other, um, just kind of forgave each other and mm. and there was it was a very christian decision to forgive um and to live one, once again with each other 
um, after that horrible moment. And that's only possible when you, you worship a savior that forgave people from the cross, right? That's only possible when um, you have a, a, a God that puts that at the very foundation of the faith. I agree. I agree. So let's, let's talk really quickly about, um, you know, there might be some people that have uh, participated in psychedelic practices, obviously, you know, we'll presume with the best of intentions, you know, what, and maybe even that they're, maybe they're not, uh, they probably wouldn't be super religious Christians, or maybe they're considering Christian Christianity, or maybe they're deconstructed. Like what sort of, what would you recommend for them? You know, what, what sort of advice would you give people who have participated? And I'm not, again, we're not talking about like, you know, smoking weed a couple times. We're talking about, you know, ceremonial mushroom use, ceremonial psychedelic use in the United States or abroad. Like what would you suggest for them? So the first, first thing I'd say is, is not the unforgivable sin, right? It's not the th- a thing that once you've done it, you can't come back from it. Um, I, I'll say from a personal standpoint, I did it and you did it, yeah. right? Like there's, there's, um, so it's not unforgivable. It is over overcomable. Um, and so I would say in light of everything we've talked about, my caution would be stop doing it, you know, break away from it. Do don't do it again. Um, don't participate in it. Um, but also, you know, just like with anything else you do wrong, you know, there, there has to be a turning away from it, a repentance, a, a um, asking for forgiveness from it. Um, and that may seem, if you're not a Christian, <laughs> that may seem weird. Mm. Um, but if you take these spiritual questions, if you say there's real entities, this is all real spiritual stuff, um, you have to admit it's, po- it's possible that you do need forgiveness. And like that's where I, I, I would encourage, even if you're not a Christian, you to think about um, that need for forgiveness. Even if your intentions were good, um, that, that that's something you should look to. Um, and then, you know, I think just when there's, a, I think there's a genuine hunger for spiritual experiences that people have um, that I think is a good hunger. Um, I think we are, as human beings, we're not just matter. We are spirit and matter mixed together, um, uh, combined together. And I, I would say there is a promise within Christianity and a deeper magic, a deeper spirituality, a deeper um experience that you can have within kind of an orthodox method of of experiencing the spiritual and scripture gives us a path to that whether it's fasting prayer meditating on the things of god um worshiping in church um there's profound spiritual experiences and you look back through the history of christianity and there's been incredible Christian mystics that have experienced amazing things in the astral plane, you know, amazing <laughs> things through, through God. And I will say just as, as a regular guy, I've had amazing spiritual experiences completely sober as well, yeah. following the, the rules of Christianity. So um, that hunger that you might have that you felt fulfilled through um, mushrooms or whatever, um, it's not necessarily a bad desire. Um, but it's just being fulfilled in a way that it, you should not be fulfilling it. So, you know, that would be my encouragement is once you've kind of turned from that to continue seeking that spiritual experience, but to seek it through, through God who will grant it to you um, because he, he loves to feed us in a way that we want to be fed and, and um, 
Jesus has a line where he says, uh, what father, if his son asked for bread, would give him a serpent. And it's very relevant for everything we've talked about here is like, God will give you bread. He'll give you what you're looking mm-hmm. for. He won't give you the serpent that you'll find through, um, through mushrooms or through ayahuasca or whatever it is you're taking. Mm-hmm. And to that, I'd like to add, uh, that's beautiful, by the way. Um, and, and to that, I'd like to add, um, you know, a couple, a, a couple of my own suggestions for those listening, you know, from a, a man who's, ha- who's done these things and has gone and, and done and, and seen, who's participated in these medicines, you know, over 20 times, all the different medicines I've done, quote unquote medicines. And what I can say is that the, some of the most powerful spiritual experiences that I've had have been of reconciliation of picking up the phone or going to meet somebody and apologizing for something that, that I did wrong and, and really allowing myself to open in that way and to be forgiven and to seeing the power of, of what forgiveness really is and how, how much it's transformed my consciousness to have my conscience relieved in such a way that this thing that I did wrong, I need to make it right. Like that and not to underestimate the, the, the spiritual power of that experience between two people where the dread of the worst happening, like you go to apologize to someone and maybe they're just going to cut your head off and the whole world is going to end. It's going to be awful and painful when it's actually something far less than that and far more beautiful. Like that is a very powerful, very accessible spiritual experience for everybody and not to under, and you don't need to blast off into the cosmos for that. And I would also say that I think part of this, there's an eschatological conversation to have here too. Like if you're always thinking that oh Jesus is going to come and you know and and we're we're in the end times and we just got to wait out the clock and here he comes versus like having a perspective on reality like no this life is a spiritual experience and you can make your works you can spiritualize life you know in service of God and I, I think to bring it all the way back around like that's what people I think are missing like why am I depressed why am I anxious it's like because you're supposed to give your life in service of God and the everyday moment is supposed to be spiritual and prayerful and connected in this way. And you don't need to exit this reality. But as soon as you try to do things on your own strength for yourself or for self-serving purposes, you cut yourself off from this, you know, from the waters of life. And so I think people, they don't want to live that way. So they, and it's hard to live that way, you know, no joke, but they go looking for it in a chemical and they get so much more than they bargained for. Yeah, no, that is absolutely true. Very, very well said. And it's, um, you know, I, that should be the big takeaway for everyone is like, if, if you just recognize that um, there is, uh, there's so much more here than kind of is advertised, uh, you know, you, you're, you're not playing with some alcohol, a different yeah. version of alcohol. You're, you're playing with something that will open up doors that, are much much more dangerous and i i think people if if there's no other lessons people take from this please just take that as your lesson absolutely let's let's close and just talk about the book and and uh what you're what what's gone on some of the story that you've uh what, what's happened as you've gotten out gotten it out there what your goals for it are and, and where people can find it you can find it on Amazon. So it's Return of the Dragon, The Shocking Way, Drugs and Religion Shape People and Societies. If you just search Return of the Dragon, Ungit, my last name, U-N-G-I-T. If you don't include the Ungit, you will get uh, Bruce Lee movies. 
Um, so, uh, but <laughs> yes, get, search search for Re- Return of the Dragon Ungit, and you will find this book. There's an audio version of it. Um, there's an ebook version, and there's a paperback available. Um, and uh, yeah, check it out, read it. It's um, something that I think um, has a lot of interesting stuff. And I, I think give it to a friend, give it to someone that might need it. Um, it's written in a way, like we've mentioned, is is for everybody. It's not just for Christians. It's it's for anybody that has interest in these. Um, and I've had some, you know, you asked like, what has kind of been the response to this book? It's it's been amazing. Some of the pe- responses I've received from this book, and it's it's been people that were heavy into drugs that were shocked by this book and found it, you know, found it powerful and true. Um, and sent me messages thanking me so much for this book. Um, I've had um, people that have um, reacted with a little bit of anger towards this book. Friends of mine that have have been kind of are in that drug world and like are were upset by it. Um, but um, as a whole, it, the response has been pretty um, overwhelming to me. Of like how many people have read this book and and really found it to be powerful and true. Um, including, you know, people that, um, um, I didn't, you know, like, I didn't even have any hopes for reaching, um, people that, um, are in that influential world have reached out to me on this book, um, and, and have, have said things. So my, my hope going forward, my objective for this book, um, is that it will serve as that warning of Pandora's box, um, that, people will hear this message and they will respond um, with caution and with soberness and not just stumble into this. And I think we're at this moment where if we don't put up this warning, we're going to be there and it's going to happen faster than anybody thinks. You know, the the change on marijuana took five to 10 years um, and we're just a few years behind on, on harder psychedelics. And so my, my hope is, is that we can put a warning sign up for everyone. Um, so that's kind of the book. So my encouragement is just buy that book, give it to somebody, help me get the warning out. Um, and just, you know, there, there's this, my voice is not going to be enough. Your voice is not going to be enough. It's, it's really going to take the church as a whole. Um, and the, the, um, wise people as a whole speaking up on this and and raising alarm bells and slowing this train down because it's starting to move quickly. I agree. Well, thank you so much, Lewis. I, like I said, I, I really love the book and, um, and I can already think of someone to give my, give my copy to and, and um, you know, the, both the book and, and your sub stack, you've written some follow-up articles, you know, about the, about the book as well. And some, some additional material and support, which is like, more shocking than what was in the book already. And so I'll, I'll link the, I'll both, I'll link both the book and your Substack in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah. Great. Thanks.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.